We are here in Philippians 1. Um, I'm going to kind of summarize some of our review time. On this journey through Philippians, we've taken uh, the last three weeks, as you look at the back of your handout, and we've worked through verses 19 through 26. We're talking about this resolve in the life of a believer. An amazing word, an amazing discussion we've had. Um, as we look through this, this resolve, basically the idea is this, this gospel-centered resolve is because God has radically changed our lives through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in other words, because we have been graciously filled with the fruit of righteousness, as verse 11 says, because we have this assuring promise that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it, will complete it, will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ, that's verse 6. So all of this context, this gospel-centered mentality here, because of all of this, now there's a certain element of resolve we bring to our spiritual lives. This determination. By God's grace, through the empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have this conviction, this resolve to get out of bed in the morning and to serve our master, Jesus. That was the resolve of the Apostle Paul. Gospel-centered resolve. So far in this journey, looking at this resolve, as you can turn your page back over, you can see a gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to keep trusting God, to trust God and to trust God and to trust God, that he is doing his work. We found that in verses 19 through 20. A gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to magnify Christ above all else in my life. Kind of the question we had is, if people will zoom into your life, like these smartphones, if they zoom into your picture, What do they see more clearly? Do they see you more clearly or do they see your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ more clearly? The prayer of our hearts is that when people zoom into our lives, they see more clearly the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And where do we find that in the next passage, verses 21 through 23? We find this, a gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to eternally treasure Jesus Christ. Remember this motto in verse 21. For to me to live is, fill in the blank. Let's try that one more time. For to me to live is Christ. He is supreme. Paul announces this motto. For me to live is Christ. And he goes on with the thought. He says, but to die is gain also. Why? I mean, as you, as you follow through the text, and we'll look at more in just a minute, verse 23, he says this, I, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, though, and be with Christ. That is far better. Why? Because I'm going to be with my treasure, Jesus Christ. I will see him face to face. This is the passion of the Apostle Paul. So a gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to keep trust in God. By his grace, we hold this resolve. A gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to magnify Christ, and a gospel-centered resolve lives, a gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to 
eternally treasure this Christ in this life and the next. And we're going to move on in this study to verses 24 to 26. So this week I had one of those brief but very deep theological discussions with my wife about people in history who've devoted their lives to bringing happiness to others. There's so many people that could come to our minds. People that lived their life to bring happiness to others. People through history, unbelievers and believers, who their goal in life was to bring happiness to those around them. I have to be honest, though. (laughs) The first one that really came to the forefront of our minds was this fella. Uh, Buddy the Elf. I'm telling you, we have, we're, you know that something's wrong, that you haven't really grown up when you have a theological discussion with your wife about the depths of bringing happiness to someone else and this guy pops into your mind. All right, that's how digressed our theological talks become, or you know that you've been in the parent world a little too long. But anyway, this guy right here, we may or may not watch this movie once a year around Christmas time. This fellow who says, what, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing loud for all to hear? I love this. But anyway, the sermon's not about Buddy the Elf, but about those who bring happiness to others. I, uh, I was thinking further, maybe on some better terms. <laughs> um, just historically, those who've live their life in a way to bring happiness to others and this concept of bringing happiness to others and actually this intrigue about this whole discussion of happiness. You know, we live in a culture that's consumed with this concept of happiness, uh, finding a way to compel a laugh. That's just how we're geared. We love to laugh. I mean, we love to, in the heaviness of this world, we love to grasp for something that will bring us happiness. Uh, So I was thinking through this this week, and I was thinking historically, and I just started thinking through some of the philosophers and some of the spiritual gurus, not necessarily tied, and some of them in any way to a Christian worldview, but just in general, how do people observe this concept of happiness? Well... I, was, I came across some really neat articles, but I was thinking about this. I mean, there's this fella, happiness comes through simply being alive or existing, existing in its fullest. In the 6th century BC, Gautama Buddha says this, there's no path to happiness. Happiness is the path. I sat there for a while and scratched my head on that one. Interesting. I, I, I moved forward uh, to the next century, 4th century B.C. in Plato. Actually, 5th century B.C., Socrates. Let's talk about him. Happiness comes through, for Socrates, happiness comes through simplicity of life. Oh, I could kind of uh, identify with that one a little bit. Finding some happiness in it, but I still scratch my head. Here's what Socrates said. The secret, <coughs> excuse me, the secret of happiness, you see, is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. 
So I read through that a little bit, and I just kept scratching my head and saying, well, that's interesting. I moved on to the next century with Plato. Happiness comes through looking, here it is, looking inside yourself. I'm, I'm telling you, when I look inside myself, it's scary. But Plato says this, the, of the, uh, the man who makes everything that leads to happiness depend on himself and not upon other men has adopted the very best plan for living happily. Again, scratching my head. What? I mean, these are some of the most gifted thinkers of, of all of human creation. Aristotle in 300 B.C., simply states this about happiness. Happiness depends upon ourselves. Ouch. I mean, I continued on. I mean, we skipped a massive area in history now, but let's go to the 19th century. One of the most prolific author and poets wrote some interesting stuff. Henry David Thoreau, in the mid-19th century, says this. Happiness comes through passivity. So you're not pursuing it, it's just going to come upon you. And here's how he says it. I mean, it's beautiful how he says it, but I still scratch my head. Happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it will elude you. But if you turn your attention to other things, it will come and sit softly on your shoulder. I scratch my head and thought, well, that's interesting. I'm not quite sure how that all works out. Here's another thinker. The late 19th century one obviously that doesn't have a Christian worldview. And he kind of doesn't even come close in his philosophies. We're talking about Frederick Nietzsche. He says happiness comes through, and this makes sense when you think about the philosophy of Frederick Nietzsche, it comes through control. Happiness comes as I control something. Here's what he says. Happiness is the feeling that power increases. It makes me happy. The resistance is being overcome. And that will somehow bring happiness. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, as I was running through these great minds of history, thinking how people are pursuing happiness, I mean, and, and running all of these concepts through the grid of the scripture. I mean, different articles reading, primarily this one out of... Uh, business insider that has some of this stuff out there, you know, not real deep, but throwing all these concepts together and th running them through the, the grid of Scripture. I'm going to tell you, honestly, sitting through this stuff this week, my heart was breaking. Why? The world around us, even some of the greatest thinkers in history are looking for true happiness in wrong places. Sadly, the ungrounded happiness of this world does not last. It doesn't, it doesn't make it to the end. Whether you're trying to look within yourself or you're looking for that butterfly to fly on your shoulder or looking for that control, whatever it may be, it doesn't last. And I think one of those characteristic examples of this is one who I grew up thinking about, one that brought so many laughs to people, Robin Williams. You know, Robin Williams, one that wanted to bring happiness to everyone else, but guess what? He died because of his unhappiness. It's fleeting. What the world actually needs is not unsatisfying happiness. What the world around us needs is an all-satisfying joy. 
a true joy that is found only, brothers and sisters in Christ, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what the book of Philippians is about. Not finding the superficial, fleeting, ungrounded, shallow type of a happiness that will only get you maybe to the end of the day, but a joy that will carry you all the way through till you breathe your last breath and all the way into the next life. That is this joy of this book. Joy inseparably rooted in Christ. Joy that is growing every single day. Joy that is all satisfying, even through the deepest, darkest depths. The scariness of the trial you're going through. This is a joy that can satisfy your soul. It will last forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ at Crosspoint. The world around us needs something to bring that needs someone to bring them the joy of Jesus Christ. That is what the body of Christ does. We take this joy that God has given us, this outer satisfaction in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we bring it to the world around us. That is one part of this joy. But the other part of this joy is what does the body of Christ do? The body of Christ constantly reminds ourselves that this joy is worth holding on to. What do we do in the body of Christ? We encourage each other with this joy. We encourage each other through the tough times in life. And yes, they do come. I just prayed a minute ago about some I know in this body that went through some tough times this week. We're talking about death of loved ones, financial troubles, physical troubles, all of these things, emotional heartbreak. Break. In all of these things, what are we to do as a body of Christ? We're to encourage each other to hold on to this joy with all we have. I believe... That in this passage, now we're getting to the passage, Philippians chapter 1, verses 24 to 26, that is Paul's heartbeat. Would you follow along as I read this morning? It's up here on the screen as well. As I follow, would you follow along as I read verses 24 to 26? Paul's passion for this church to grow in the Lord and to grow in this joy, Paul says this, but to remain in the flesh, that is his physical life, to remain physically is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, here it is, I highlighted it in red up there, for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, so what's happening here? If we can kind of step back just a second and remind ourselves of what's happening in this passage, we'll just just step back three verses because we need to connect this passage to what was happening in the passage last week. What was happening in the passage last week? Well, If you remember verse 21, again, it's on the back of your handouts if you'd like to see. The motto of verse 21 is this. 
Paul's life motto, basically, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So then he sort of spends some time on this thought of death because he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So he's got a bit of contrast going here. Then he spends some time talking about death, right? And what does he say in verse 23 about this death? Oh, brothers, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two, life, death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But he says this, and we kind of get a, a, a picture at the inner parts of Paul's heart. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, my treasure, for that is far better. So if we were to just stop there in the passage, I'm going to tell you that says a lot about our treasure, Jesus Christ. But to be honest with you, it doesn't say a lot. If we were to stop right there, it doesn't stay, say a lot about how I'm to function today. So we're constantly looking at the end. We're like, yes, I'm treasuring Christ. And then if you go back to 22, basically the thought is this, but whether that life or death it happens, it's out of my hands. It's not mine. It's, it, and this is, this is actually a great discussion. Because if you go to this discussion, you say, for me to live is Christ and die of gain, you find those who say, okay, well then I'll just look to end my life. That's not biblical. In fact, Paul in verse 22 is basically saying, that's out of your hands. You're not God. God will design, God has designed the end of your life. It's not for you to decide. But so we, we come to the end of verse, this verse here, 23, and it's like, okay, well, well, what do I do now? Yeah, I want to magnify Christ. Yeah, I want to treasure Christ with Paul. But what does it look like, in a very practical way, how do I do it? How do I live for Christ today? What is this going to look like in my life? And I think we get a glimpse of that in the Apostle Paul's life. I think Paul answers the very adequate how question. How am I going to live for Christ? In verses 24 to 26. And so as we go through this passage, we want to kind of saturate it in this idea. The last of the resolves that we look at in these, in these verses. A gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to help others grow in Christ. I absolutely love this. Because Paul is so introspective in this passage and is so consumed with letting Christ be my treasure, magnifying Christ in my life. And now we get to the very practical how that's going to work. And he says, I am left on this earth to glorify God, magnify Christ by helping other believers grow. Why did God give us another breath to breathe today? I'm going to tell you, it's not so you could get up and make a delicious coffee. <laughs> God did not leave you on this life today, even though that's nice, and we can enjoy those things of life, most of us. I'm not the biggest fan of coffee. My coffee is very foo-fooed up. <laughs> but it's not so you can enjoy your next food, your next meal for the foodies in this room. God did not leave you on this earth to just make that next dollar, to pad your bank account, to grow in more comfort. Why does God leave you on this earth? Paul shares this with us. 
to grow personally and then to help those around you grow in Jesus. Can we kind of develop this a little bit? Uh, just by going one, one phrase at a time, let's just start with this first phrase in verse 24. Paul says this, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Okay, what does this mean? Simply this, and I don't want to make this more complicated than it is. Simply for Paul to stay alive would be profitable for his brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi. Why? Because he could help them grow in Christ, the next verses. So, Paul was willing to set his personal excitement about seeing Christ aside for the good of the body of Christ. I love this. This is awesome. Because as we read through these passages, just like I, I said, we, we, we kind of embrace this very introspective view that my relationship with Christ should be dominant with me treasuring Christ, with me magnifying Christ. It's very, it's very me-centered, it almost seems like. But Paul's very clear here that that is not the full intention of your walk with Christ. It is not that you live your life on an island or in a tower, as we say often. God has left you on this earth, like Paul says here, so that you can encourage other believers in Christ. Basically, I love this because it's like Paul is saying, you know what? It's not all about me. <laughs> it isn't all about me. By the way, we're going to hold this thought because this segues perfectly into chapter 2. We're going to take all of chapter 2 and, and, and see this humility of mind. It's not all about me. We're going to see it, just kind of a, a precursor of what we're going to see in chapter 2. We're going to see it lived out in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to see it lived out in the life of Timothy. We're going to see it lived out in Epaphroditus, another fella. But Paul is saying at the end of chapter 1, it's not all about me. Although I want to go see Jesus with all I have, although I treasure Jesus over anything in my life, why am I still here? To grow in Jesus and to help those around me grow in Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 25. Convinced of this, or being confident of this, as some of your translations might say, I know that I will remain and continue with, all, with you all. It's somewhat of a confusing statement. Lots of different opinions about what verse 25 says. Basically, although Paul knew his life was on the line, he, he wasn't assured that he would have another day. And we've talked about this already. It could end. He was tied to the imperial guard. Um, he knew death was imminent. But he says, although Paul knew his life was on the line, he also had some strong expectations and confidence from the Lord that he still had ministry work to accomplish. Basically, if God were to graciously allow Paul to stay alive another day, Paul was convinced and consumed with the thought of ministry. Paul wasn't consumed with the next meal he was going to eat. I love this because you travel back into the sayings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in, in Luke chapter 14, he says, if you want to follow me, you better be able to put your, you, if you want to be a disciple, you put your life on the line. It's not all about you. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus Christ says. Jesus Christ is to be supreme over any plan you have, any person in your life, and any priority in our lives. That's the way of Jesus Christ, the way of a disciple. 
And Paul is simply stating that here. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And if I'm going to stay in this earth, it is to carry the cross. It is to bear the cross and to help others grow in Christ. Now we find the reason, the goal, the purpose of his staying around. Okay, why of all of this? There's a phenomenal statement right here at the end of verse 25. Here it is. For your progress and joy in the faith. So basically, for your joy in the faith, for your progress in the faith, and for your joy in the faith. We can put it that way. Why was Paul sticking around? Here's why he was sticking around. To help the church progress, to help the church advance. This is the same word he uses in verse 12 for the advancement of the gospel. Paul is saying the gospel is going to advance through me, through the ministry, but I'm going to help you also progress in your walk. Paul was consumed with helping those around him advance in the faith. Paul was resolved to help the church advance in their walk with God. He was resolved to help the church take another step in their spiritual lives. He was resolved to help the church grow in their relationship with Christ. Church, why am I here, he's saying. Why am I chained to this guard? Here's why. To help the church of Jesus Christ grow. He also says this. For your joy in the faith. Not just for your progress in the faith, but your joy in the faith. This is, how, this is why we started off the sermon with this concept of joy. Joy is a massive theme in the book of Philippians. Constantly, Paul is using this word joy. I mentioned this prior, but this is one of the main reasons. This concept of New Testament joy that Hannah and I named our first daughter, Kara. Kara is the Greek word joy. Her name is Kara Christine, joy in Christ. And Paul, through this passage, is constantly talking about this joy. What is this joy? It's the state and experience of inner gladness. And I chose the words there because we're talking about inner gladness. As the fruit of the Spirit, this joy is a direct gift from God that can only be truly experienced by believers. Joy, although may be touched on by unbelievers, cannot be fully enjoyed by unbelievers. I I hope we can understand that. Joy is, I mean, we talk about these Christianese words. This, in fact, is a Christianese word. Joy comes to believers. It is a fruit of the Spirit and can only be truly, deeply enjoyed by those who are Christ's. Joy is an expression that biblically surpasses outward feeling of happiness. So a lot of times we think about this outward feeling of happiness. I'm going to say joy far surpasses this and reaches into the depths of who a person is. Who is that person? I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Joy is inseparably grounded in faith, in the faith of Jesus Christ. Joy is never dependent on outward circumstances. That is so important as we analyze this concept of joy. Joy is not dependent on what everything around, how everything around me looks. Joy is never dependent on outward 
circumstances. It is grounded in inner peace and satisfaction. That God who saved me is the God who's got me. And he will never let me go. That's what joy is. Joy is often revealed, and I think probably some in this room can attest to this in a mighty way. Joy, as you go through Romans 5, James 1, 1 Peter 1, the passages we often go to when we talk of trials, joy is often revealed and developed in our life through trials. So when we think about this joy in our life, this joy is not the absence of trials. Joy is God being with us through the trials. That is this joy. And Paul says, I want to help you, church. And here's how God has laid it on my heart to help the church, is to help your joy in the faith advance, that you would keep having joy. Basically, that they would treasure Jesus Christ with all they have to find this joy. So, what if, what if this was our resolve every day? You thought about that? What if it was my resolve every single day? I mean, I'm not promised another day. We talked about that last week. Not a single one of us is promised in here that we will breathe a breath tomorrow, that our heart will beat tomorrow. But if God in all his grace gives us another day to live, what if our strong resolve was this? I'm going to help my brothers and sisters in Christ grow today. I am resolved to find someone and help them grow in Jesus today. Um, sadly, all too often, I think we would all recognize this, all too often, Members of the body of Christ are so wrapped up in our own comfort, our own preferences, our own ideals, that we won't even consider the joy of those sitting around us. We're so wrapped up in our comfort level in the body of Christ and having things just the way we want them in the body of Christ. The fact of the matter is when we walk in these doors to church, we, are, we have a, a strong biblical call to be filled aware, as we've talked many times, to see others in the body of Christ that are hurting, to walk up to them, to put our arms around them and say, you can do this through Jesus Christ. That is the call of the body of Christ. Paul continues this thought, and we'll just kind of wrap this up, because I love how he says this in the next phrase. He says, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, we have some purpose behind this as well, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, that concept of ample cause, translated different ways through the different uh, Bibles you have here. Basically, an abundant, overflowing opportunity. So when you see the Apostle Paul, when you observe his life, you have an overflowing opportunity to do something. And what is that something? To place your glory in Jesus Christ. That word glory is another word in the New Testament for boasting. It's boasting in a right way. It's the word rejoice. That you would have ample opportunity by interacting with Paul to boast in Jesus Christ with all you have. 
to put all your glory, all your stock in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is saying here. I am left on this earth for a reason. What is that reason? To help you find Jesus Christ and to glory in him till your last breath. And he says, he wraps up this passage with this word, these words, because of my coming to you again. Basically, through personal interaction with Paul, the church would be compelled to grow. What would make all of this happen seamlessly in Paul's mind? If I could just see you again. I love that too because this is, as we've said oftentimes, this is a very relational book. Paul cannot wait to see other believers and to help them. I mean, we've talked about this several times. Remember who is in the church of Philippi. I mean, it's not like a church that doesn't have problems. I mean, it seems like it's pretty well put together in Philippi, but you also have a Yodius and a Syntyche who can't get along. You also have very stubborn people in this church that Paul talks about. You have very proud people. And in my mind, I think maybe Paul might, re- might leave that last phrase out, possibly. <laughs> you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you through my pen. And Paul says, you know what, I want to do more than that. I want to encourage you face to face. I want to see you. He had such a longing in his heart to be around other believers. And this goes back to that call not to live our spiritual lives on an island or in a tower. We are to live our spiritual lives in connection with the body to encourage each other face to face. Okay, let's summarize this. This key idea. If you could take all of this and kind of summarize it down to a statement, it'd have to go something like this. We as believers, must live our lives with a resolve. Not just to treasure Christ, not just to magnify Christ, but also in that to minister to other people in the body. So we advance this in context with the first part of this statement. Because God has radically changed our lives through the gospel, now we live, we must live with a resolve to minister to others. So can we just take a minute and let this soak in? What are the primary three things here that Paul is praying, that Paul is desiring, that Paul is resolved to do? Hit the primary three things just on your handout, the, the, three, the three blanks on the passage. Progress, joy, and glory. What is Paul's desire here for this church? And I believe the same as we ought to have in our lives. Here's Paul, Paul's resolve. His resolve was to help them progress, to advance in the faith. To help them find satisfying joy in the faith. To help them ultimately glory in Christ Jesus with all they have. Brothers and sisters in Christ at Crosspoint, I believe firmly from this passage that this is the same resolve we should have with each other in the body of Christ. For me to live is Christ. And how am I going to do that? By doing whatever I can possibly do to facilitate growth in other believers. Children, adults, friends, family, acquaintances looking for every opportunity to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ that they can keep going. You can do this. Putting our arms around people and walking with them through their spiritual lives. Allowing others to come alongside me and encourage me in my walk. 
by house, by doing what I can to help others find satisfying joy in Christ, the middle one. Where is your satisfaction found? Constantly reminding ourselves that our satisfaction is inseparably tied to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we can have this joy. Not this fleeting happiness that comes through passivity or control or butterflies flying on our shoulders. But this joy of connecting our lives constantly, regularly to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How else? by doing what I can to help others in the body of Christ to glory, to abundantly rejoice in Jesus Christ. To causing others around me to see the beauty of a magnificent Savior. Because God has radically changed our lives through the gospel, we must live with a resolve to minister to others. So what? So what? It's 11.20, we're about to walk out these doors. How is this going to change my life this week? How is this going to transform my thinking when I get out of bed in the morning? I would say we'd have to start the so what question with another question. Who am I ministering to right now? Ask that in the first person pronoun again. Because it's intended to be introspective. Who am I encouraging in the faith right now? Would you ask yourself that? Who are you coming alongside of and saying, hey, we're in this together? Who in the body of Christ are you coming along and saying, you can do this? Teens, what other teens are you coming alongside and saying, Jesus is worth it? You can get up in the morning, go to school because you can treasure Jesus. Older people in this church, what younger person are you coming along and saying, you can do it? As Titus says to the older women, teach the younger women. Teach them. Show them the compassion. Come along one of those young moms and saying, hey, you can do it. <laughs> you can keep going. You can treasure Jesus with your family. Brothers and sisters in Christ here at Crosspoint, what are we doing to pray together, to cry together, to laugh together? What are we doing to invest our lives into someone else here? By the way, you know what that's called in the New Testament? Discipleship. And that is in direct obedience to the commission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, to disciple. Here's another question, we'll close with this. Do I regularly bring the joy of Christ to others? Okay, what baggage do I carry when I come to church? <laughs> I mean, honestly, we have Christ, our treasure, this joy is to be written all over our faces. I mean, I, I was a bit frank sometimes in different ones I worked with in ministry because I knew the struggles of my own heart. I said, you know, it might be good today if you told your face that Jesus loves you. That joy, we can tell our faces that we have a Savior in our bodies. What, what joy surrounds you when you come to church? Honestly, are you consumed with the joy of Jesus Christ? As the Old Testament shares, the joy of the, this joy is our strength. It's what gets us through. Or are we always bringing with us this bag? And in the bag is a big pile of woe is me. I'm going to give some woe is me over here and woe is me here and woe is you there. Don't get me wrong. 
in any way. We are to confess our faults one to another. We are to share our burdens. That's what the scripture says. But this should never dissuade our regular resolve to bring joy, the joy of Jesus Christ to others in the body of Christ. What are you doing to put your arm around someone and say, you can do it? Jesus is worth it. Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus.